Now, it's, it's really, we're talking about King Solomon, the end of his life. We're talking about what a tragic uh, ending it was. It's hard to understand Solomon, as I said last week. The compromises he made during his lifetime uh, proves to be his undoing as he gets older. He's, he is the wisest of men, but he acts like a fool in certain key areas of his life. He's called out for committing two serious offenses, as we saw last week, two serious offenses, that of, first of all, marrying pagan women, and secondly, for committing idolatry. The first led to the second, by the way. But that's not where the story ends. Solomon does not get away with all this. In fact, he will receive a severe judgment for his offenses, far greater than he could have imagined, as a matter of fact. Now, last week we talked about Solomon's serious offenses. This week we're going to talk about the Lord's serious reaction to, to Solomon. The Lord's serious reaction. That's found in verses 9 through 43 of 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, rather, chapter 11. And uh, Stephen read some of the verses, but let's, let's read, uh, well, I tell you what, exactly what is the Lord's reaction? We say his reaction is serious, and it is serious. First of all, he's angry. You see that in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. The Lord's angry with Solomon for what he's done. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. The Lord is angry with Solomon. You know, I remember as a kid, if I disobeyed my parents, I could look forward to one thing. That was a spanking. I got an old-fashioned spanking is what I got. And I'll tell you one thing, it hurt. And I, I never wanted to get a spank. My father administered proper spankings, by the way. He never was abusive physically. You have to in, include this information nowadays. Back then, you just got a whooping, right? He didn't, uh, he didn't uh, you know, physically abuse me. Properly spanked me always. But I remember him being angry. Every time I got disciplined, got a whooping with a belt. He uh, was always angry. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had, I had disobeyed him. And uh, I know his anger was justified. I knew it was justified because I had done something that was displeasing to him. And I knew, and now I, I realize now part of his anger, maybe most of his anger, was because he really didn't want to spank me. But he had to spank me. He knew he had to spank me. And this he was following Solomon's advice in Proverbs chapter 23, 13, and 14, which says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol, which is one of the problems with our generation. They don't do this, and so they have all kinds of issues. Discipline of children is necessary. It's a vital, vitally important part of raising children in a way that they can honor the Lord. And in the same manner, the Lord has to discipline his people. He has to do it. And he's, a right, he's got a right to be angry when he has to do that. He, is, and he he's, has a right to be angry at our disobedience. He should be angry. He's God. and He's perfect in all his attributes. And although our anger can be impure, we can have our anger can be mixed with impatience, things like that. God's anger is always pure. It's exactly what it should be. It's always righteous. And so when he's angry, he always has a right to be angry. So why exactly... Is the Lord angry with Solomon? Well, first of all, because his heart turned away from God. His heart turned away from God at the beginning of verse 9. It says there, uh, now the Lord was angry. And as he says, the Lord was angry with Solomon, uh, making it passive. Sounds like a passive thing on the part of Solomon. He was angry uh, with Solomon because his heart, rather, um, the second part, his heart was turned away from the Lord. The passive part is his heart was turned away from the Lord. 
But actually, it says in the Hebrew, he inclined his heart from the Lord. He did it. He turned his heart from the Lord. It's not passive on his part. Yes, his wives had a role in this. In verse 4, his wives turned his heart away, it says, after other gods. So they definitely played their role. But we cannot excuse Solomon because it says here, he inclined his heart from away from the Lord is what it actually says. He inclined his heart away from the Lord. And he must take the responsibility. Solomon did it. Now think about this. The God who chose Solomon, the God who loved Solomon, who blessed him, who granted him untold wisdom, vast wisdom was spurned by Solomon. You can imagine how the Lord's heart was broken over this. Just like the heart of a father is broken because, because uh, his children have disobeyed. Now what earthly father wants to discipline his children? They don't really want to, but they have to. It's a necessary part of, of child rearing. I never wanted to discipline my children, I'll tell you that much. I never enjoyed it, never looked forward to it. But I knew how to do it on occasion. And so, but the Lord, you know, when their disobedience calls for it, you have to discipline them. But the Lord had to do that for Solomon. Now, there's a, there was a time when Solomon loved the Lord. 1 Kings 3, 3 tells us that. But his love for the Lord waned over the years. It waned. At least some part, at some point it turned away. His heart was turned away when he was older. As I said last week, as Solomon says in Proverbs, we must watch over our heart. Um, for, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything comes out of our heart. We must watch over our heart. Our heart will govern our affections. Uh, and so if our, heart, our affections are set on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, then our actions will follow suit. If our actions are drifting away from the Lord, then our, our actions are going to reflect that as well. In John chapter 21, after Peter's, Peter's denial, what issue did the Lord bring up? He brought up the issue of Peter's love for Jesus, didn't he? He says three times, he says, he inquires of Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Actually, he asked him that prior to the three times. He asked the same question also, so it's really four times. He says, Peter, do you love me? That's a good question. Do we love the Lord? Do we really love him? And if we really do, then our actions are going to follow suit. The Lord's angry with Solomon because he inclined his heart away from God. <clears throat> Secondly, the Lord's angry because Solomon was privileged. He's privileged. It says in verse 9 that the Lord appeared to him twice. That is the greatest privilege of all. God actually appeared to Solomon. That's a, a privilege few had in the Bible. Now Moses, we know about Moses, it says he spoke uh, to the Lord face to face, figuratively, to say he really had a, a close relationship with the Lord. And there are angels that appear to people in the Bible that have a message from God and so on, but that is still a rare thing. Solomon is greatly privileged. And it's not just one time but it's twice the Lord appears to him. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. In Gibeon, it says, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And then on that occasion, that's where the Lord said, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon says, I want, I want wisdom to judge my people. A great request. And God gives him that request first time he appeared to him. Then in 1 Kings 9, 2, the Lord appears to him again. We're talking about a man who is greatly privileged in many ways. I mean, think about this. The Lord appears to him twice. He has this wisdom, incredible wisdom given to him by God. You know, think about the spiritual privileges you have as a believer. We are greatly privileged. I mean, Ephesians 1, as Jeremy spoke on in Sunday school today, is a long list of, of uh, privileges that we have as believers. With such spiritual privileges, how is it that we, can't, we cannot love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? We should automatically love him. You know, we look back and condemn Solomon for what he did, right? But how often have our hearts grown cold toward the Lord as well? And so, you know, even though we're greatly privileged, oftentimes we've gone away from God. 
The Lord's angry with Solomon because he took his privileges for granted. Thirdly, the Lord's angry because he knew God's will on the matter. Solomon knew God's will on the matter. Verse 10, it says there that he had commanded him concerning this thing. This thing. Now, what thing? The thing about going after other gods, that thing. He commanded him about that. And we're aware of what the law of Moses says about this. It says it in many places. We saw some of the references last week that you can't intermarry with pagan women, they were told in the Old Testament, because they're going to turn your hearts away from God. And we looked at some of those references last week. Furthermore, it's a breaking, a breaking of the first commandment, a violation of the first commandment, which says you shall have no other gods before me. But not only that, not only did he have the scripture to look back on and rely on, he was personally warned by God. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9. Go back to 1 Kings 9. Now, remember, the, the, Solomon had built the temple. He had dedicated the temple to God. And Solomon says, God comes to Solomon a second time, and he says, you know, if you walk before me and you obey my commands, I'm going to establish your kingdom before, you, before me and before Israel. You're going to have a great kingdom. But then he gives this warning. And we kind of wondered at the time, man, he just built this temple. He prays in this temple. He asked God to bless the temple. And now God's warning him. Look at verse 6. But he says, if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done this? to this land and to this house. And they will say, because they forsook the Lord, their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. And so you have this warning, fair warning in advance. God gives them the fair warning. He says, Solomon, if you walk with me, everything's going to be good. But if you disobey me, bad things are coming your way. And Solomon, he fails to heed this warning. So, the wisest man ever plays the fool. Now, you say, how is that possible? Someone asked me last week. How can the, the wisest man in the world, a man possessed of the wisdom of God, totally blow it like this? How is that even possible? You know, just because you have the wisdom of God is no guarantee that you're going to live wisely. There's no guarantee. You can know the right thing to do, but it doesn't mean you're going to do it. It's like Jesus said to his disciples when, they, when he went to, he was going to, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, he says, Stay here and, and watch and pray. And he comes back, and what happened? They're asleep, right? They didn't do what he said. Wisdom is not helpful if you don't follow the advice offered by wisdom. Solomon didn't even take his own advice. So, and we still have to do battle with the flesh. All of us do. And sometimes our flesh overcomes our wisdom. And so Solomon knew God's will on the matter. He knew it. He just didn't obey God's will. And so he faced the Lord's anger. God's no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of persons, whether it's Solomon, whether it's me, whether it's you. He doesn't care about that. He becomes righteously anger, angry over disobedience to his word. Does that, does that mean the Lord doesn't love us? No, of course not. Nehemiah 13, 26 says Solomon was loved by his God. He was loved by his God, it says. And God made him king over all Israel. The Lord loves us. That's why he must discipline us, because he does love us. And so the Lord is angry. That's one part of his reaction. Secondly, he passes sentence on Solomon. Verses 11 through 13, he passes sentence. It says in verse 11, So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this thing 
and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for, your, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So just like a, a judge in a courtroom, the Lord has passed sentences on Solomon and on his kingdom, and there are two parts to this sentence. First of all, judgment, and then secondly, there's mercy. First of all, judgment. He says in verse 11, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and will give it to your servant. Now, in the Hebrew, the word tear is mentioned twice, back to back. And whenever you see that kind of construction, it means that this thing is going to happen with certainty is how, is how it plays out. So the Lord has determined the kingdom is going to be torn from Solomon. It's definitely going to happen because what the Lord says will come to pass. The word tear normally refers to the tearing of clothes in the Old Testament. But in this case, it's used of a kingdom that's going to be torn away from Solomon. And that, it, it, it can be illustrated by clothes. Though. 1 Samuel 15, do you remember 1 Samuel 15? When God says, Saul, I'm rejecting you from being king. Saul disobeyed the Lord. And, and yet, even though God had rejected him, Saul still wanted to be the king. And Saul, wanted, he wanted to have the blessing of God upon him still. He was the king, but he wanted to have God's blessing upon him. And so he wanted Samuel, the prophet, to support him. And so he tries to get him to support him, but Samuel says, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turns to leave, and Saul grabs his robe, and it rips and tears. And Samuel says to him in verse 28 of 1 Samuel 15, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and he's given it to your neighbor who is better than you. In the same way, here we have a repeat of history. The Lord's going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon. And the same illustration is going to be used later on. What a judgment after the Lord had strengthened Solomon, after he had established his kingdom, it says in many times in 1 Kings early chapters. After all that, he now is going to dismantle the kingdom. So there's this harsh judgment rendered on Solomon and on the kingdom. And then there's mercy. You know, the Lord's a merciful God. He's a merciful God. He shows mercy even in judgment, thankfully. And he shows it in two ways here. First of all, he allows Solomon to continue to the end of his reign. He doesn't take him out. He allows him to continue to reign all the way through. But his, his son, in his son's time, his kingdom, is going to be taken from him. And then secondly, he leaves one tribe with, with Solomon and, and for his descendants. The one tribe is going to be Judah. But I'm going to say more about that when we get to verse 30. And so, so God's merciful. And this mercy is based upon a promise made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. Speaking, uh, uh, he's speaking in there to the immediate successor of David in 2 Samuel 7. And we know now the immediate successor of David is, and also is Solomon, but with a view to all his descendants. And the Lord says, My loving kindness shall not depart from him, from your descendant, David, from Solomon, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. In other words, he's going to still show loving kindness to Solomon. Verse 16 of chapter 2 Samuel 7 says, The house of David and his kingdom shall endure forever. So he shows mercy to, Sol to Solomon. He shows mercy to Solomon, but not, also to so not only to Solomon, but it says here in, the, in, in chapter 11, 1 Kings 11, 12, and 13, it says he does it for the sake of David. He does it for the sake of Jerusalem. So the Lord passes judgment, a harsh judgment on Solomon, on the kingdom of Israel, but it's tempered with mercy because God is a God of mercy. It's something we can never forget. 
So God is angry in his reaction to Solomon. The Lord passes sentence on Solomon. And thirdly, he raises up adversaries against Solomon. He raises up adversaries. That's found in verses 14 to 40, the great bulk of the chapter here. Now, the Lord shows mercy to Solomon, but he also fulfills another promise from the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7 again. It seems like we're always going back to 2 Samuel 7. Have you, know, have you seen how important that chapter is? And he says there in 2 Samuel 7, 14, the Lord said to David, I will be a father to him, that is, I'll be a father to the descendant of David, I'll be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, not if he commits iniquity, iniquity but when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. I'm going to correct him when he commits iniquity. We're talking about earlier about how a father corrects his, his child. And God corrects his, his people. He says, I'm going to correct him with the strokes of the sons of men. In this case, the Lord's correction is going to involve three adversaries that he raises up against Solomon. And that's how he's going to correct him. Th those are found in verses 14 to 40. Now look at verse 14. We'll see the first one. Let me read these real quick in a row, the three names. Verse 14, then the Lord, number first adversary, the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was in the royal line in Edom. There's the first guy. Verse 23, God also raised up another adversary to him, Razon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord Hadadazer, king of Zobah. And then the third one, verse 26, then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the Ephraimite of Zerida. Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. So they're sent, these three men are sent for a punishment against Solomon for his disobedience. Again, as we look at this, we have to go back to the Davidic covenant. Because the Lord promised rest to David from all his enemies. Even Solomon gives testimony to this fact. Back in 1 Kings 5, verse 4, Solomon says, The Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary... Neither adversary nor evil occurrence. He's got rest. God's blessed him with rest from his enemies. And that was then. This is now. Solomon's disobeyed God. He's crossed the line as an older man into idolatry. And now the Lord will have to correct him. And he uses three adversaries to do that. The first is Hadad. Look at verse 14 through 22. Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. Came about when David was in Edom. And Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel stayed there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, while Hadad was a young boy. They arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran, and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. Now Hadad found great favor before Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes, the, the queen. The sister of Taphanes bore his son uh, Ganubath, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Ganubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Send me away, that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what if you lack with me, that behold, you are seeking to go to your own country? And he answered, Nothing. Nevertheless, you must surely let me go. Now this guy, Hadad, is an Edomite. And if you remember anything about Edomites in the Old Testament, they are the enemies of Israel. Now he's from the royal line, or more literally, it says that he's from the king's seed. This guy is from royalty. And back in 2 Samuel 8, David uh, had gone to war against the Edomites. 
and he had killed many of them, it says back in 2 Samuel 8. In fact, so much so that Joab tried to exterminate every male in Edom. In Edom. However, some Edomites had escaped, of which Hadad was one. They take a journey on their escape, and they go to Egypt, and uh, where Hadad is royally treated by Pharaoh because he's royalty, and Pharaoh thought he should treat him that way. In fact, Pharaoh liked him so much, he says, I'm going to give you my sister-in-law in marriage. Now, you, you, you look at that and you say, well, that's not, what's the big deal about that? Well, <laughs> it could be the height of irony. Why do I say that? Well, it's very likely that Hadad reached marriageable age during the reign of a Pharaoh called Siamun in 978 to 959 uh, B.C. Now, Siamun was the Pharaoh who gave Solomon his, his uh, daughter in marriage. And if Siamun is the Pharaoh that gave his sister-in-law to Hadad in marriage, then it's very, and that's very likely, by the way, then how, how ironic it is that Solomon and, and, and Hadad, his enemy, may have a wife from the same family of the same Pharaoh. And that could have happened here. Now, Hadad's wife bears a son in Egypt and becomes like a son to Pharaoh. Pharaoh loves him. But upon David's death, he, Hadad wants to go back to his own country. He's going to stay there about 30 years and wait for his chance to get even with David because of what David did to them back in 2 Samuel 8. That's the first adversary that God raised up. Then the second one is Razon. Look at verse 23. God also raised up another adversary to him, Razon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band after David slew them of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. So he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did. And he abhorred Israel, and he reigned over Aram, or reigned over Syria, same thing. In 2 Samuel 7, again, David is mentioned as having gone after several enemies, uh, Edom. He also goes after the Syrians, that's Aram, or Aramites, uh, Arameans, rather. Hadadezer was the king of Syria. Uh, Zobah was the capital of Syria. Razon had been under the control of Hadadezer the king for some, and, and was able to break free from his control. And he gets his own men, and after Hadadezer is defeated, he conquers Damascus, which is also a city of Syria. And so here's the second adversary. <clears throat> and we're kind of given the background of these guys. So what you have here <clears throat> is two guys who want revenge against David because David defeated them in battle. And they're very angry about that. They want revenge. And in Solomon's years, they posed a great threat to the kingdom of Solomon. Razon causes problems for Solomon on the north, and Hadad causes problems for Solomon in the south. Verse 25 sums it up. So he was an adversary <coughs> to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did. He abhorred Israel, reigned over Aram. Razon abhorred Israel. He absolutely hated them. He despised them. And so he had incentive to be their adversary. And then you have a third adversary. Stay, stay with me. I know this is not exciting, talking about these historical characters here. Jeroboam in verses 26 to 40. Jeroboam. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the, the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. 
It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them went, were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took of the, hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes, but he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, <clears throat> the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life, for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel." Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Solomon sought therefore to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, the Shishak king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now, unlike the first two adversaries, uh, Hadad and Rezon, this guy, Jeroboam, was an insider. The other two were outsiders. He is an Israelite. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. And uh, he, he gets his start in Solomon's government because it says he was not only a valiant warrior, but Solomon saw the young man was industrious. So Solomon looked out and saw this guy, Jeroboam. He's not lazy. He's diligent about what he's doing. He's a hard worker. <laughs> he gets things done. So Solomon places him over his forced labor. It's just like Proverbs 22, 29 says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not, be sta he will not stand before obscure men. Now Solomon, was, by the way, was not about to employ a shiftless, uncaring worker. He didn't do that. He got people who knew how to do their jobs, who worked hard at it. Just as an aside, by the way, this is a truth that applies for all time. This business of, do you see a man skilled in his work? He's going to stand before kings, not before obscure men. You know, uh, learn the skills necessary for your line of work and work hard and be diligent. That's going to tend towards success. And not only that, God says that it will. And he's behind this. And furthermore, don't you think the Lord wants us to pursue excellence in all we do in, wor in our work and our jobs and all this? We should do this. And if we do it, we, we should do it as under the Lord as well. Whatever we're doing, it doesn't matter what you're doing, we should pursue excellence for the Lord's sake. And Solomon knows this. He wrote the words to Proverbs 22, and he, and he picks this guy to be the leader over, over this crew. And, and, that was, and that was a good choice from the work aspect. But in time, something happened. I don't know exactly what. It says uh, it doesn't really explain it. Something happened, and Jeroboam rebels against Solomon's authority. By the way, rebel translates the phrase, he lifted up his hand against the king. And when you lift up your hand against the king, guess what? You have committed treason, basically. And so uh, he, Solomon, uh, Solomon is being judged by God. Solomon's committed spiritual treason against God. So God is getting him back, and, and Jeroboam becomes a great problem for Solomon. 
You know, when you look at these, these guys, these three guys in history, uh, let me just stop for a second and say something about God's sovereignty over human history. This morning in Sunday school, we got into a discussion about God's sovereignty. And uh, it was an interesting discussion. But <clears throat> Psalm 75, 7 says this. God puts down one and he raises up another. He puts down one, he raises up another. He exalts another. You know, as history unfolds before us, do you ever hear an unbeliever say, wow, look what God's doing in his universe? Do you ever hear that from an unbeliever? They don't see life that way. They don't think, as they see the events happen in America or in the world, they don't think that way. Uh, they don't think about God in connection with the events of the day. And as believers, we don't always think about it either, do we? How many times do I look at history? Do I look at what's unfolding in front of me right now and I say, what in the world's happening here? Why is this individual doing this? Why is that guy doing that? And I tend to take shots at these people. And, and, and I have, a, and on the one hand, I'm writing that because there's a lot of evil things happening from a lot of people. But we have to remember this, and, I, and Chuck and I have talked about this many times, and he has reminded me, thankfully, and I have to remind myself that God's sovereign over all this. God is sovereign over all these things. And that doesn't mean that all the evil that people do is, is God's fault. I don't blame God for the evil that we do. We can't do that. But he is sovereign over the course of human history, directing it to, its own, to his own end. And so you got these three guys. He's raising these guys up. Look at verse 14. The Lord raised up an adversary of Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. Verse 23. Then God raised up an adversary, Razon. Now you think Hadad and Razon knew what God was doing? They didn't have a clue about all this. God uses circumstances that they had gone through in life to bring them to this moment. And then he raises them up for this purpose. And yet this is another, yet another scripture in the Bible. We are talking about how can people go to all these churches and not understand God's sovereignty at all. And it's because they haven't, I said they haven't been taught this by their, by their leadership. They haven't been taught this. But the Lord is working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. He's always doing that. And one thing we have to realize is that the events taking place in the world are under the sovereign hand of God. And it, I don't always see that, because I, I just see what's in front of me all the time. I don't always see this. But, and we won't understand these things either. Don't try to figure it out. Well, I can't understand what's happening. I can't either. Nobody can understand it. But God is sovereign. All we can do, so what do we do? What, what we talked about in Sunday school, what do we do? We trust the Lord, right? We trust the Lord in his sovereignty. And so Jeroboam comes along. <clears throat> he rebels against the king. <clears throat> Prophet by the name of Ahijah is sent by God to give him a message. And he has to hunt Jeroboam down to give him that message, by the way. And he finds him on a road out of Jerusalem, leaving the city, going somewhere. He doesn't say where. He even wore a new garment for the occasion, by the way. This prophet Ahijah did. He wears this new garment in verses 29, 30, and so on. Uh, unfortunately, it would be the last time he would wear the new garment because it kind of got shredded. And so they're alone out there. And... Ahijah suddenly tears his brand new garment into 12 pieces. By the way, when I read this, I couldn't, for uni uniform, former uniform guys out there, which I was one, you're thinking, wow, there goes my garment cost, right? But in a way, he makes a point in a dramatic way to Jeroboam. He tears his garment in 12 pieces. <clears throat> he said, look, this is an illustration of, of Israel and the tribes of Israel. Jeroboam is going to get 10 pieces of the damaged garment. That equates to the 10 tribes of Israel. Ten northern tribes of Israel, he's going to rule over. Solomon's successor is going to be left with one tribe. That tribe is going to be Judah. Rehoboam's going to reign over 12, 10 tribes in the north. Solomon's successor is going to rule over the south, Judah. 
Now, you might want to start bringing a calculator with you on Sunday nights to church because I'm finding more and more as I read the Old Testament, I need a calculator to figure out what's going on here. A lot of numbers, right? I got mine out, by the way, and I added, I should have called you Rob, Rob's an accountant. I added 10 plus 1, and the answer I got was 11. But it says there are 12 tribes, right? 12 tribes of Israel. Now, no explanation is given at all. But I will tell you this. The much smaller Benjamin borders the northern boundary of the much larger Judah. And Benjamin is kind of seen as the, under the umbrella of Judah. Because Judah is the, is, the, is the tribe that gives the whole southern kingdom its name. It's the prominent tribe. So I think we can look at this as Benjamin being under the umbrella of Judah. And that's why it says 10 and 1. Now, 1 Kings 12, 21, it says Judah and Benjamin. Both are mentioned as going to battle against the northern kingdom. But I think that's one explanation. In verse 33, Jeroboam is given the reason by, from the prophet as to why this kingdom is going to be divided. God says it's because, look at verse 33, it's because they have forsaken me, he says, and they've gone into idolatry. They. Now before, earlier on, it talks about Solomon's wives, it talks about Solomon, but now it says this word they, and the word they is not specified. Not specified exactly. But it seems to indicate that Solomon led, was leading the nation into idolatry as well. At least, at least some of the nation, to some degree. In other words, his actions encouraged the practice of, we can say this for sure, his actions encouraged the practice of idolatry. We know that for sure. Definitely did. And one of the things we need to be concerned about when we sin is not how it affects us only, but how it affects other people. Because it's never just about us. And so this division of the kingdom would not happen in Solomon's lifetime, but after he died, it's God's mercy. Now I want you to understand, as you read these chapters, chapters 11 and 12 in 1 Kings, <clears throat> these are very important chapters in the Old Testament. You need to mark them down. Because this is a turning point in Israel's history. Up to this point, the 12 tribes have been united, but now they're going to be divided, and that is a remedy for disaster. Remember, even Jesus in the New Testament says, the kingdom divided against itself will do what? It's going to fall, right? It's not going to stand. But even with this division, the promise is given that David will always have a lamp before God, before the Lord in Jerusalem. That's, that's amazing. He's always going to have a lamp before the Lord. The burning lamp represented a person's life, and a lamp that was put out represented a person's death. And in this case, the lamp will not go out because it culminates in the Messiah, this lamp of David. He's, and and, he, and as, as we saw in John 1 today, what did Mike say? He's the true light, right? That lightens every man that comes into the world. Now, you say, now as, we, you know, as we look at all this, we say, well, how is this all going to work out? Well, I'd have to be God to know the answer to that. I don't know how it's all going to work out. I just know that it's going to work out according to his plan, and I believe that. Now, in verse 38, look at verse 38. Jeroboam is given the same opportunity as Solomon was. He says, God says to Jeroboam, it will be that if you listen to all that I command you, and you walk in my ways and do what's right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you, Jeroboam. And I will build you an enduring house as I built for David. What a promise. I will give Israel to you. The same opportunity given to Jeroboam as was given to Solomon and as was given to David. The Lord's going to bless him if he will obey. And so, and still today, the Lord's no respecter of persons. Jeroboam, Solomon, whoever. That call's never been rescinded for obedience to the Lord. Now, how long would this punishment last on David's offspring? Verse 39 Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always, he says. I will not always afflict them. He doesn't say how long it will be. He just says it's not going to be permanent. 
God is going to fulfill his promises to David. Now, I like what one commentator said about this. Listen to this. The Lord's promise may be, the Lord's promise may be eclipsed, it may be eclipsed, but not eliminated. That is a great statement. The Lord's promise may be eclipsed, but not eliminated. It is affliction, not abandonment. It's affliction, not abandonment. In regard to Solomon, the Lord's faithful to his promise, while simultaneously faithful to his holiness. And so God punishes Solomon, his holiness, and yet he's faithful to his promises at the same time. Everything he said is perfect. The Lord's judgment does not mean he's going to cancel his promises. Solomon caught wind of all this. He heard about this somehow, and he, and he goes after Jeroboam to kill him because he sees Jeroboam as a rebel now. And so the Lord reacts to Solomon's offense. Solomon committed serious offenses. The Lord reacts to that. And his reaction is as serious as Solomon's sin was. And so we can say that the, uh, the crime, the punishment fits the crime. And Solomon's sin brought about the division of the kingdom. And from there, generally speaking, things are going to go from bad to worse. Now finally, look at, let's look at Solomon's death in verse 41 through 43, his death. Now the, act, the rest of the acts of Solomon and whatever he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. This is obituary, kind of vanilla, right? There's nothing special about it. His outstanding accomplishments are not mentioned, nothing about building a temple, none of that. But he's, never, he's not negatively spoken of either at his death. It's just kind of neutral. The Acts of Solomon, it talks about, record things about Solomon, which are probably chronicles from the kingdom that all kings kept about events of their kingdom, probably recording the history of Israel during the time of Solomon. But those records are lost to history now. We don't have that. If you go to 2 Chronicles 9.29, you don't have to turn there. 2 Chronicles 9.29 indicates other works that were recorded by other people that talks about Solomon's deeds, which are also lost to history. We don't have any of those records, but they're recorded there. So the judgment on Solomon is severe, very severe. He worshiped other gods while at the same time he, he uh, held on to the Lord as well, which, of course, the Lord is not going to tolerate this. So let me ask you a question in closing. Where is Solomon? Is he in heaven or hell? Well, I personally think, this is my opinion, and many others think this too, I think he's in heaven. Uh, Richard, uh, Philip Reich, uh, let's see, Philip Reich and the pastor in the 10th uh, Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a famous church where James Boyce Montgomery used to pastor, says he has great hope that Solomon is in heaven. So if that helps you out a little bit, this guy has been around the block or two. But I think a lot of people have said that kind of thing. But I'll tell you this. I'm not the one that determines his salvation. I don't determine Solomon's salvation, and I don't have the answer to the question. In fact, I don't even know, need to know the answer to the question. I just need to know what the Bible records about Solomon and teach that. And I, I, here's what I'm going to do with Solomon. Somebody said last week, what do, we, what do we do with him? Well, I'm going to leave him in the hands of God, and I think that's what we should all do. I'm going to leave Solomon in the hands of God. God knows what he's doing with Solomon. I don't know. God knows. I'll tell you one thing, the most important thing that you can ask yourself is this, am I going to heaven or hell? That's what we all should ask ourselves, and we should ask our friends, are you going to heaven or hell? That's what we should do. And if, we're in, if you're unsure of that, please come up and talk to me or one of us here after the service. I want to say one final thing, though. I do think, having said all this, that we should take Solomon's view on life to heart. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12. 
Let's read the final two verses of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. We're going to close with this. <clears throat> this is what Solomon says after he talks about life over these chapters. This is how he concludes. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he says, the words of Solomon, he says, the, the, the conclusion, when all has been heard, when, I've, when everything else has been said, when it's all said and done, at the end of the day, we could say, here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. I think that's wise counsel for all of us, regardless of what happened with Solomon. I couldn't have said it any better. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful tonight to uh, look at your word again, even though there's a lot of details we looked at tonight, a lot of historical details and things of this nature. We know that the Bible is a book of history, though, based on actual history, and we're thankful for that. And we know that it's, it's, your, it's your take on history, and we know it's what you want us to hear and, and see in, in your scriptures. And we pray tonight we would learn from this life of Solomon, Lord, that we would learn what not to do, we would learn what to do. Mainly, we pray we take his advice at the end, that we would fear you, and that we'd keep your commandments, Lord, knowing that this applies to every person. We just pray that as we go our ways tonight and this week, that we would live a life that would honor you, be a testimony wherever we go. We pray that Christ would be honored in our lives, and we just pray all this in Christ's name tonight. Amen.